You may be seated. Well, if the bags under my eyes are a little more pronounced in contrast to the warm spiritual glow I'm sure still emanates from the rest of me, it's because I've just spent the, the weekend with, at Calvary here with about 70 young people at what we call Happening. Happening, for those of you who don't know, is a spiritual retreat for teenagers, led by teenagers, overseen by several adults, but many of whom are in their early to mid-twenties, all of whom are still in this building until the closing Eucharist this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Happening is quite a miraculous thing to behold, and it went off well mostly this weekend. But I wasn't so sure as things were getting started Friday night. The, the happeners, as the first-time attenders are called, had just arrived, and all those icebreaker games were beginning. Everybody had formed a large circle over in Crook Auditorium, and the person inside the circle had to walk up to another happening and say, Hi, my name is Jack. Do you love your neighbors? And then the person who'd just been greeted would say something like, Hi, my name's Jill, and yes, I do love my neighbors, especially those who have cats. And then everybody who has a cat, I mean, at home, they didn't bring their cats to happening that I know of, the cat owners in the circle would all leave their place and rush over to take somebody else's spot. And the person left without a place after the scramble is now in the middle. Got it? Now, I'm sure you can see what offended me about this game. It's basically musical chairs, but there's no music and there are no chairs. I mean, what is this generation coming to? Are there no rules left at all in the world? What's next? Pin the tail on the donkey with no tail, no donkey. Baseball without bases or balls. Anyway, after I got over my very justified righteous indignation, I realized the game did actually manage to accomplish something good. Come to think of it, in the old game we used to play, the chairs would go away one at a time and the circle would get smaller and smaller until there's just a seat left for one. The prize is to end up, I guess, all by yourself when the music stops. Somehow in the new version, amid a similar frenetic chaos, everybody was finding a place in a continuously expanding circle. Everybody was being given a seat at this wide and widening table. Maybe we should be watching these kids and their lawless games a little more closely. Jesus was being watched, we're told, when he went to eat a Sabbath meal at the home of an important leader in a local congregation. There were lots and lots of rules in Jesus' day about meals and conventions and there were laws about washing one's hands and what foods were clean and customs about where you get to sit at what table. Jesus was being watched, I'm guessing, because he was getting this reputation for disregarding some customs that he, when he thought the situation warranted it or the people involved deserved a little better. Jesus was being watched, but Jesus was doing a little watching himself, as people jockeyed for the best seats, as we do. Ardell likes to point out that this was a religious leader, and that I'm a religious leader, and that my seat in the church is right there. But we're going to move right past that unhelpful observation. I actually let Jim wear the big robe today, for just for that reason. Jesus makes two responses to what he sees. It's easy to miss that there are two, but there are two. When he notices what the guests are doing, he tells them this little parable about the wedding banquet where after everyone sat down, the host rearranges them according to how he thinks people should be seated, right? Whatever's on the menu at this banquet 
if you chose a good place, you'll be eating a species of crow, we might say, as you're sent on down to a cheaper seat. But if you've chosen humbly, you'll be asked to move up, and won't that feel better than the demotions you're all setting yourselves up for? That's his first response. Maybe the dinner guests could begin to break out of their self-serving habits by seeing that those habits might not always serve them as well as they think. But the second response is just for the host, to whom Jesus turns and says, why did you invite these people to dinner? Why does anybody invite people to their parties who are just trying to prove how important they are? Actually, what he says, if you read a little more closely, is don't invite these people to your dinner. They might invite you to their house in return, and wouldn't that be dreadful? It would. It would be dreadful in a very particular way. It would be dreadful, he says, because you would be repaid. It would be dreadful because you'd still be living in the quid pro quo world and you could be living in the world of grace. When you give a a banquet, Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. He says, Quit the game. Drop all the rules. Step off this conveyor belt to despair. And don't invite anyone into your life because of what they can give you. You would be so free if you could do that. So free. Much of the strongest language in the Bible is about our obligation to be generous to the poor. Our obligation to make room at our table for the immigrant, the outcast, the alien, right? Just glancing over at our reading from Hebrews today, there it is again. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. It's a persistent teaching throughout the whole Bible. But I don't actually believe we're told to welcome strangers and invite people too poor to repay us into our lives so that we'll get a bigger payment in heaven. I actually think Jesus wants us to come more fully alive right now. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. That's what Hebrews goes on to say, angels. Like those who Abraham welcomed by the oaks of Mamre, who said Sarah would have a child in her old age. If we would just drop the self-serving rules we usually use to decide who we'll let into our lives and who we'll sit beside at the banquet, an angel, angel might walk in and change everything. In 1985, a Dutch Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen went to live in a L'Arche community in France for the developmentally disabled adults. This sounds like a good, noble Christian thing to do, choosing the humbler seat and all that. But here's how Henry Nouwen describes the experience. The first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally handicapped people was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the many useful things I had done until then. Since nobody could read my books, they could not impress anyone. And since, all, uh, since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not provide a significant introduction. My considerable ecumenical experience proved even less valuable when I offered some meat to one of the assistants during dinner. One of the handicapped men said to me, don't give him meat, he doesn't eat meat, he's a Presbyterian. 
Henry Nouwen's story is about getting up from a dinner table with a very familiar set of norms about who sits where and how people are valued and taking a seat at a different one. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people, he writes, forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love, regardless of my accomplishments. To put his story in the context of our gospel, Henry Nouwen had the best seat at the table that was his world. His books were bestsellers. His teaching appointments were plum ones at Ivy League schools. His classrooms were packed with adoring students. And it all just didn't add up to joy. A life jockeying for the best seat at the table can actually be empty even for the guy who gets the best seat at the table, it seems. So we changed tables and Henry Nouwen watched his needs and his desires and his joys themselves begin to change. Because this need to be admired, affirmed, exalted is an old, old human burden, isn't it? And I'm becoming more and more convinced that, that when Jesus ends a teaching with something like, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, his first intention is to simply push our hope for repayment right out of this life and into the mystery of the next one. He's saying, just take getting what you're due, whether in wealth or status or admiration, just take getting repaid or admired by other people in this life right off the table and see what it's like to live this way. See if your desires and your needs begin to change. See if a burden's lifted. Because as natural as it seems to live clamoring for the best seat, or for the praise of important people. This is not the life God intends for us. This is the life Jesus wants to set us free from. Amen.